0: And uh, I was I was thinking of some creative things to say, and I was told that maybe be better it would be God's will if I kept it simple. So I will. This is Paul C from Oceanside, California.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thank you, Gary. My name's Paul, and I'm an alcoholic. Glad to be here at the 51st annual. Cincinnati Thanksgiving banquet here in Ohio where both my family started my AA family of course but also my my family uh I spent the morning today over in Harrison and and had lunch with four of my mother's cousins and I recalled that my grandfather met my grandmother here in Cincinnati and got married here in 1921. So it's kind of nice to be back. I've never been here before, but it's nice to be back.
1: So,
0: um, I also want to thank uh, Gary for inviting me and, and extend my appreciation to the committee who's shown such fine hospitality picking me up at the airport, whisking me around to pizza and movies, and. Uh, Generally, making me feel very welcomed in that AA way that we do so well. I'm very grateful for that. At a time like this, I have to, I have to remind myself that when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I wouldn't pay attention to anyone who looks like I do tonight. And what I mean by that is, I would sit, in, I would sit in the back of the room and say, "Look at that old guy up there." If I was that old, I'd quit drinking too. Look at him up there with his short hair, his ever-increasing forehead, clean-shaven, wearing a jacket and tie, jingling the change in his pocket, probably has a job. Probably wearing wingtip shoes, missionary position only.
1: <laughs>
0: and worst of all, he looks happy, you know. So, I used to, so he used to give guys like that wide berth when I came in there. You know, I, I remember too here that it's also fun for me to be here because I know two people here. Of course, your you're panel 42 uh, delegate from Southwest Ohio, uh, Diane, who I met at the conferences. Past year. And of course, your own John M., John who was so active in the Ikepa here in 83. John, people may not know this, but John sobered up in San Diego. And I met John at one of our young people's meetings. I've known John so long that we met at a young people's meeting. Is that a long time ago or what?
1: That's
0: a long time ago, right? Anyway, I did not join Alcoholics Anonymous by just waking up one day and saying, Gee, it's a beautiful day out, I'm grateful to be alive, I'm in good health, I like myself, I like what I'm doing, I have the love and respect of my family and friends, and endless career possibilities. (laughs) I think I'd better go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting tonight. (laughs) I didn't join AA that way. I joined AA the way it was described by the spiritual mentor of one of our co-founders when he said, if I ever get into heaven, it'll be by backing away from hell. I wasn't so much running forward to embrace sobriety as I was running away from drunkenness. Or more accurately, I was running away from the pain that I vaguely associated with my use of alcohol. Now, that pain was well-reflected in the lousy, rotten, hurtful, terrible things people said to me in my drinking days. And people used to say terrible things to me when I was drinking. They'd say, Paul, you're fired. (laughs) This is a terrible thing to say to a drunk. They'd say, you're under arrest. Right? You're under arrest again. You're under arrest again. You're under arrest again. I'm sorry you'll have to move out. You can't live here anymore. Get away from me, you creep. I wouldn't go out with you if you were the last man on earth. Do you remember what you said to me last night? Do you know what you did to me last night? Leave my daughter alone. And then my favorite, here's your ring back, it was kind of small anyway. (laughs) I'm thinking, my God, I hope she's talking about the diamond. (laughs) So people said terrible things to me when I was drinking. But they were no worse than the things I'd say to myself. Because the things i say to myself were, I'm the worst son, brother, friend, boyfriend, student employee, citizen, or human being who ever walked the face of the earth. Why don't I do everyone a favor and just kill myself? It almost came to that before I got into Alcoholics Anonymous. I was a teenage alcoholic. I, I see that's redundant for many of you
1: tonight.
0: I was a social drinker for about 20 minutes. And I get a good sense of my alcoholism by looking at my high school yearbook photo. Because when I look at my high school yearbook, I see that, you know, in the 10th grade, I was involved in a certain number of activities, in 11th grade, fewer, and 12th grade, fewer yet. I was not voted most likely to succeed or best all-around personality. I was voted most stubborn in my high school class. Most of the kids had some sort of a nickname under their name, Skip or Muffin or something like that. Because of some alcohol-related offenses as a youth, my nickname was Jailbird. (laughs) Most of the kids also had some kind of a quote under their names, you know, something you could look back at years later and say, yes, that really captures the essence of old so-and-so, right? Well, the girls were in their maudlin phase, so they liked a few lines from a dead poet, preferably one who committed suicide. The boys were in their rebellious phase, so they liked these, uh, these arcane references to drugs and obscure rock lyrics. But my quote was, again, years later, that's what Paul was all about in high school. My quote was, let's split another six-pack, Dave. <laughs> you know, so I- if you look at my high school yearbook and you get a sense of a kid who's kind of angry and had a chip on his shoulder and had problems with authority and drank too much, you'd be accurate. <laughs> There was the time as a teenager I went to see our family physician, and he's for some real or imagined ailment, and he said, Paul, are you still drinking and taking drugs? I said, no, Doc, I'm not. He said, well, you better quit. (laughs) And I gave the alcoholic response to that, which is okay, There was the time I was arrested for being drunk in church. They call it public intoxication and disturbing a religious ceremony. Uh, Now, this is terrible. You know, my understanding was, wait, wait a minute. Let me get this straight. It's a mortal sin, but it's a misdemeanor. Is there any way we can get some reciprocity going between the penal code and the church here on this thing? The answer was no, but I, I felt terrible about that. And finally, a woman in AA shared with me, she'd been... She'd been kicked out of several churches because of her drinking. Finally, her alcoholism progressed to the point where she was actually excommunicated by a satanic cult. You know, when that happens, there's no place left to go but Alcoholics Anonymous. So, then one one fine fall day in 1971, I was indicted by the grand jury, arrested in my own home, had a picture of myself in handcuffs on the front page of my hometown newspaper, and was sent to jail for several months, all for being a careless drug dealer. I thought, I thought here I was being a Johnny Appleseed of peace and love, and and they just thought I was a crook giving LSD to undercover narcotics detectives. So they eventually sent me to jail for several months. I didn't like being in jail. These guys were all into being tough and macho, and working out, becoming muscle-bound, swearing, smoking cigarettes, having tattoos. Some of their tattoos were misspelled. (laughs) They sure appreciated it when I pointed that out to them. (laughs) Excuse me, aren't there two L's in killer? so, I didn't do well in jail. Didn't, didn't like it in there a whole lot. And then one day, the guy in the cell next to me was leaving, and I said, Where are you going? He said, To an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And I said, Sign me up. And he did. And I hope I never forget that I attended my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting with the, the pristine motive and the deeply spiritual and self actualizing purpose of getting out of my cell block because I was bored. Now, this was a small, rural upstate New York County Jail. They did not have well-organized institutional committees. They waited till they had a critical mass of drunks in the jail, and then they called up Roger and asked him to come in and put on a meeting. Roger was the institutional committee in that area, and Roger was the first uh, walking, living, breathing copy of the big book I saw. And he made it clear to us, you know, Roger was kind of an easy-going guy, and made it clear that uh, coming in and to the jail and talking about Alcoholics Anonymous was part of his recovery. He made Alcoholics Anonymous seem like an okay outfit to belong to. And uh, he was a good guy. A couple years ago, I was back there. And as I always do when I get back there, I looked up Roger and and he says, well, let's go to a meeting. I said, where do you want to go? He says, why don't we go to one of the jail? And I said, gee, do you think they'll let me in? He said, no, why not? They did last time. So... So we go over to the jail, and these guys come shuffling in, looking remarkably like I did years ago, and uh, I told my story, and afterwards a guy came up to me and said, "Uh, that drug bust you were involved in, was that in September 1971? And I said, yes, it was. He's been in and out of jail ever since on alcohol and drug charges. I got to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. He figured it out. Now, I did not at that time pay attention to Alcoholics Anonymous. I got out of jail and started... Smoking hash and drinking beer, ran away to California, which was wonderful. The only problem was I brought myself with me. Instead of getting drunk on funny little regional beers in central New York State, I got drunk on funny little regional beers in San Diego. And when the fear and the loneliness and the depression and the drinking got bad enough, I called Alcoholics Anonymous. I called the inner group, and I was greeted kindly. On the other end of the phone, I was directed to a meeting where I was again greeted kindly. Bob met me at the door, and Bob set an example for me of of how new members of Alcoholics Anonymous ought to be treated, that I rarely meet, but that I see met all the time. He sat next to me during the entire meeting. Here I was, being embraced for the fact that I couldn't hold my booze any longer. And I was not an attractive newcomer. This was in the early 70s, I had uh, hair to my shoulders, a beard, and wore jeans, sandals and an Air Force jacket I got for five bucks in a thrift store, but Bob sat next to me during the entire meeting. There are a lot of other things he could have done with me that night. He could have given me a cup of coffee and a meeting schedule and said, keep coming back kid. He could have done that. He could have looked around the room for another angry hippie looking creature to introduce me to, hoping that I'd identify with him. He could have spent his time trying to help a more attractive newcomer, preferably a young, cute, braless one. He could have done all those things I since have spent too much time in AA doing. But he didn't. Bob sat next to me during the entire meeting, and people would come over to him, and he'd say, I'd like you to meet Paul. He's the new man. And I get choked up now thinking of how I was treated at that first AA meeting. After the meeting, another guy came up to me. I didn't know it then, but I know it now. He was nine months sober after nine years of bouncing in and out of AA, dropping acid, and smoking pot. He took one look at me, which was probably a tip-off, and said, what else are you on? (laughs) And I said, what do you mean? He said, LSD, pot, speed, reds, whites, mescaline, what else are you taking? I said, all of the above. He said, well, you better knock it off or you're not going to make it. I was offended by that because I thought here I was being a good guy by giving up my drinking, and you people wanted me to give up my other hobbies too. I did not immediately comply. I came to a couple AA meetings after smoking pot. This is a bad idea. If you're new in AA, let me assure you, you don't need to smoke pot to be paranoid at an AA meeting. (laughs) So I stopped that, bad idea. And then uh, I I ate a couple bottles of pills in a suicide attempt, sober and regularly attending AA meetings for weeks. Now, without belaboring the obvious, it didn't work. But my attitude towards pills is kind of funny, I'm afraid, and it was well described by a woman who told me what happened after she she got a prescription painkiller after she had some extensive dental surgery. And she said, Paul, when I got the prescription, it said, take two every four hours as needed. By the time I got to the pharmacy, it said, take four every two hours, whether you need them or not. By the time I got home, it said, take them all as soon as you can. I, you know, I identify with that. That's kind of how I am. So then I got sick and I needed to get some cough syrup. And just so there is no mistake about the active ingredient in this cough, syrup, they put a plastic shot glass on top of it. So, right? I see I'm not the only one. Took me a long time to figure out NyQuil is not an after-dinner drink. For for most people, so. Well, now, the group I was hanging out with was was a very active group. Um... And they would, you know, I knew it was kind of hard to get AA as a whole to say anything about drugs, but these people had opinions about it, which they voiced loudly and often and unsolicited in my presence. So I figured I had to change my sobriety date, and I didn't want to do that because I didn't want to give up my 10 weeks of accumulated status that I had in AA at the time. But I did. I I stood up at my home group and changed my sobriety date, and and I'm glad I did that because... uh, you know, if I can't be honest with you about, you know, the basic reason we're here, how can I be honest with you about the other things going on with me? I was so grateful for the example of people who went before me who stood up and changed their sobriety date, too. That was important to me. I got in, involved with this uh, this active Alcoholics Anonymous group, and, um, and I got a sponsor. And I chose as my sponsor a guy who was sober a number of years. Uh, he made Alcoholics Anonymous seem like an okay outfit to belong to. He's the one who told me, uh, you know, we didn't make the 12 steps so hard that an alcoholic couldn't do them or else none of us would be here. He also had a misspelled tattoo on his arm. One day, you've got to understand, I was 21 years old when I came into AA and was preoccupied with 21-year-old matters. And One day he sat me down after an extensive whining session and said, Paul, listen, he says, you got to understand something here. I don't care if you ever have sex with anyone other than yourself again. And I don't care if you ever work again If you take these 12 steps Those matters will be taken care of I thought he said If I did the steps I'd get a girlfriend and a job He didn't say that He said those matters Would be taken care of And they were taken care of But they were taken care of In AA time Not my time AA time is about 5 or 10 years after my time So So We embarked on this adventure of working the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, the single most important thing that's ever happened to me in my life. I remember those early revelations about, you know, it's the first drink that gets you drunk, you know. Paul, if you get hit by a train, it's the engine that kills you, not the caboose. And those realizations that if I had one beer, I wound up having 10 or 15 of them and there wasn't anything I could do about that. And those realizations about the spiritual and emotional unmanageability of my life. And I slowly came to believe that Alcoholics Anonymous could keep me from drinking. I came to that belief through my frequent association with AA members. And my frequent attendance at AA meetings where I saw people get well. I saw people who couldn't read get up here and read. I saw people move from the back of the room to the front of the room. I saw people talk about getting their kids back and getting jobs. And everywhere I looked, there was a light in their eye and a smile on their faces and a bounce in their step. And eventually, in the face of all this evidence, I had to accept that it was possible to happen to me, too. So I made a decision to follow through on the Alcoholics Anonymous program of recovery, no matter what. You know, we in AA, we we stand the old Roman on his head. He said, I came. I saw, I conquered. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, see, I had had at least two bottoms, the one that got me here and the one some months later when I realized I had to do something different. And that was the point where I was able to say, I came, I saw, I surrendered. And my sponsor thought it was, we did this on our knees together as described, and he thought it was really neat that I was willing to turn my thoughts and my actions over to AA and suggested that we find out specifically what they were, and so I embarked on an exercise of writing down my resentments and faults and fears and sexuality and excruciating detail and then uh, shared them with him, and sometimes, you know, I could look him right in the eye when I told him something that was pretty embarrassing about me, and other times my face just burned. I read it off the page. Those were the times I had to wake him up, of course, When I was done with that, uh, after the numbness wore off, I I realized what was blocking me from my spiritual growth. It was no different from anybody else I've ever met in AA. Pride, anger, jealousy, fear, and so forth. And I asked for those things to be removed. And my sponsor again thought that that was a real neat thing for me to be willing to do and said the way we do that is we make amends to people. So I made a list of people that I'd hurt and how I hurt them. But I'm the kind of guy who you can feel guilty forever over dipping a girl's pigtail in an inkwell in third grade. But some woman who I was in a three-year relationship with, whose feelings I just steamrolled over,
1: well,
0: after careful consideration, I think the little witch deserved it. You know? So I didn't have any perspective on this stuff. So I got some perspective on it, and then I was able to set out, and sometimes with the bit in my teeth, To do all the things you folks have done and make the phone calls and write the letters and pay back the money and see the people and so forth. And because of that, I'm free today. I am not tyrannized by the seething bitterness and resentments that I had when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm not paralyzed by the fears. I'm not afraid to go anywhere and do anything and see anybody because I'm not looking over my shoulder anymore. And I lived like that for too long. You know, I I, I realize that I I joke about getting arrested for being drunk in church, but what I forget to tell you is that uh, I did go back a couple different times over the years and see those people and do what I could to repair that situation. If I'm going to stand up here and tell you how I got sick, I've got an obligation to tell you how I got well. This is not about 45 minutes of funny drinking stories, and then I joined Alcoholics Anonymous, and now everything's wonderful 20 years later. That's not what this is about. If I'm going to tell you how I got sick, I've got an obligation to tell you how I got well. And if somebody can't tell you how they got well, or won't tell you how they got well, perhaps they're not well.
1: <laughs>
0: so, so I was uh, most appreciative that there was a tenth step inserted in there, which allowed me to repair things as I went along and occasionally prevent some things. And, clear the way to allow me to benefit from prayer and meditation. And I have people in my life today who tell me that they have stopped drinking and joined Alcoholics Anonymous partly because of what they saw happen to me. And I don't think they looked at me and said, gee, Paul joined Alcoholics Anonymous and got worse. Let's go sign up. I don't think they did that. I think they said, gee, we don't have to bail him out anymore. He seems a little more at peace with himself. His mother can get a good night's sleep. And I think a good night's sleep is one of the greatest gifts Alcoholics Anonymous has given my mother because for a long time, a very long time, I was a candidate to be just one more dead drunk shipped home in a box to break her heart. So she could sit around with me frozen in her memory as an active alcoholic and say, what did I do? Where did I go wrong? He was such a bright boy. He had such great potential. Alcoholics Anonymous has saved my family from memories like that. And it's healed my family in many ways. The example I like to cite, because it's just so inspiring to me, was in you know, 1985, we had this international convention in Montreal. My family decided to have a family reunion in Erie the same weekend. Well, I agonized and thought about it, and then I told my mother I was going to go to Montreal. And she was hurt, and she wanted to know why. And I said, "Well, it's you know, Lois is still alive. Uh, it's the golden anniversary of the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous, the program that saved my life. Uh, it's going to be the biggest AA meeting in the world, and I was too drunk to go to Woodstock. So, <laughs> so I want to, I want to go to this thing. Now, my my mother has two brothers, and there's 14 of us cousins." and she got on the phone and they all agreed to change the date of the family reunion so Jerry's middle boy from California to go to his AA convention and the family reunion. They had the reunion one weekend and the convention the next and that's exactly what we did. Now that's love and that's the healing power of what happens here in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I'm glad I stuck around in order for that to happen. Now I had some problems with women after I came into AA. I know this is hard to believe. But <laughs> At a year sober, I was very depressed because this heroin addict declined a once in a lifetime opportunity to move in with me so I was but at two years sober, I was on top of the world because I was in love with a wonderful woman, and then that didn't work out, so I decided to to resurrect an old relationship. They're always winners, aren't they so you know. So she moved in, and we had a great time for about 20 minutes, you know. <laughs> Then she started doing things without my permission. She started going out with other guys and having sex with them. My permission. Now, now I, I probably should understand. This is a woman who made a costume once out of a hula hoop and went to, ha- to a Halloween party as a diaphragm. Now... <laughs> You would you would think that would be a clue. So, but but then she started going out with other women and having sex with
1: them.
0: And what can I, I say? For God's sakes, if you're going to have sex with other women, the least you could do is invite me along. So, it, I I hope someone didn't just take my photograph up here. I really hope that did not happen. I hope I'm still having flashbacks. In any event, she also got an abortion without my permission and moved out, all without my permission. Now, I was attending the University of California at the time. There on ten week quarters, I spent six of those weeks at home in my bathrobe depressed. I think I even got a I got a three-year cake during that time. I was quite an inspiration to the newcomers that night. (laughs) Three years. Thanks a lot, you guys. Sobriety sucks very inspirational, but but what saved me was about six months earlier, I had begun sponsoring a young aircraft mechanic, and he would come over every night and say, come on, Paul, get dressed, it's time to go to a meeting, remember when you used to tell me that,
1: and
0: I know that Mark saved my life doing that. I try to be kind to newcomers myself because I never know when one of them will turn out to be my sponsor. Two and a half years later, he officiated at our wedding, and people would come af- up to me afterwards and say, what a nice young minister, what denomination is he? You know, I could say was, well, I don't know, he's an aircraft mechanic. You know. My wife is an interesting study. She, she can tell when the guys who call me on the phone are getting well just by talking to them on the phone, because there's kind of a continuum with them when they call. First it's, is Paul there? Then it's, hi, is Paul there? Then, hi, Mary, is Paul there? Then, hi, Mary, how are you, is Paul there? Then, hi, Mary, how are you, and waiting for a response before saying, is Paul there? Then it's, hi, Mary, how are you? And the two of them get into a conversation, and the guy realizes he doesn't need to talk to me after all. So <laughs> well, it's kind of nice. I also had some problems in the work world. I was afraid because of my youthful indiscretions that I could never get any kind of a good job. At four years sober, I applied for a research position in a law enforcement agency required a background check and a poly exam. And I went in and was very open about my arrests and convictions, about my alcohol and drug use, and about my recovery. And I got the job. And that taught me some very important lessons. It taught me that people are less concerned with what I did than whether or not I'm honest about having done it. It taught me that the world is more forgiving of me than I am of it. And it taught me that the world is more forgiving of me than I am of myself. All the time in Alcoholics Anonymous, I see people take themselves out of the running before the race has even begun. I could never get a job like that. They'd never hire me. I can't get back into school and my transcripts are too screwed up. And with those approaches, they're right. No one's going to come along and say, Paul, got a great job out here. Come on come out from under the covers. <laughs> Just doesn't seem to work that way. I also had some financial difficulties caused by chronic unemployment, <laughs> school loans, and irresponsible use of credit cards. I woke up about about five years sober or so and found I was $30,000 in debt. This was about twice what I was making at the time, and I considered going bankrupt but decided not to, and uh, we paid it off. It took over 10 years, but everybody got all their money with interest, and Alcoholics Anonymous taught me how to do that. I also had some curious health and dietary habits when I came into AA. I always thought I ate from the four basic food groups. Alcohol, tobacco, caffeine, and sugar. It was either that or it was beer, wine, marijuana, and crystal. Never, could never quite get them straight. But, but the way I ate when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, for breakfast I'd have two large sugar-glazed apple fritters, coffee, rollades, and cigarettes. For lunch, I would go to a fast food joint for a cholesterol burger, french fries, soda pop, and cigarettes. All day long with cookies, candy bars, soda pop, and cigarettes. For dinner, I would either go back to the fast food joint, then go to a meeting, drink coffee, smoke cigarettes, and wonder why I was still awake at 2 (laughs) a.m., or skip dinner rush to a meeting eat a bunch of cake and cookies and donuts go out with the gang afterwards and have an ice cream sundae go home and pass out in a hypoglycemic coma (laughs) while smoking a
1: cigarette
0: and this was better than I ate in my drinking days when I stopped drinking and joined Alcoholics Anonymous the other guys in this opium den I was living in at the time accused me of turning into a health nut (laughs)
1: <laughs> now, I wanted to quit smoking as soon
0: as I came into AA I was advised not to try I was told I should wait till I was sober a year Because it would be too hard Now, when I came into AA I was smoking a pack to a pack and a half of cigarettes a day I looked at the people who were sober a year They were smoking two and three packs of cigarettes a day <laughs> Now, I realized that it wasn't methodologically sound, but I said to myself, I'm supposed to wait until I'm twice as addicted and then try to quit? (laughs) I had less than 90 days sobriety when I quit smoking. It's been over 17 years since I've had any kind of coffee or soda pop, 15 since I've had any of the cakes and donuts and pies and so forth, and about 12 or so since I've had any ice cream. And that's an important aspect of recovery to me. Now, I told you about all the rotten things people said to me in my drinking days. So I think it only fair that I share with you some of the things people have said to me since I've been sober, which include, here's your associate's degree, here's your bachelor's degree, here's your master's degree. You're hired. Here's a job, here's a raise, here's a promotion, here's some more responsibility. As a matter of fact, I got a promotion two months ago. Yes, I'd love to go out with you. I thought you'd never ask. Yes, I'd love to engage in wild, kinky, sober sex with you. I thought you'd never ask. Yes, I'll marry you. I thought you'd never ask. Congratulations, you got the house. Your unsolicited article's been accepted for publication and closed as a check. Gee, you're the only man that completed our ballet training class. Here on the occasion of our 10th high school reunion, we give the award for the most changed to Paul. I'd like you to be the best man at my wedding. We'd like you and Mary to be godparents to our son. Will you be my sponsor? I didn't know other men felt that way. I've never told anyone that before. You mean, you did that too? (laughs) This is the first time I've ever cried sober. I've never hugged a man before. And the most amazing of all, I think, is thank you for adopting my baby. You know, we were married in 1979 and soon found out we could not have children and eventually went to one of these adoption agencies and went through all the, the counseling and got placed on a waiting list. And when you're on a waiting list, you wait. And it was at the wedding of some AA friends that we first heard about Nancy's situation. Nancy was sober five years, was a single mother of three children, pregnant, and considering surrendering the baby for adoption. We made arrangements to meet at an AA meeting. And realized we knew each other, not well, but peripherally from AA meetings. And Nancy decided to give her baby to us. Now, she's no dummy. Nancy knew she could get 10 or $20,000 for this healthy infant. But it was more important to her, she said, that he be raised in a home where the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al Anon were practiced. So she gave her baby to us. Little Kevin was born in March of 1990. We got him in April. In November, Nancy asked me to give her a six-year cake at an AA meeting. And I've given tons of cakes at AA meetings. The first time I forgot how long the person was sober. But I think that was a fine tribute to all the help Alcoholics Anonymous had given both of us. Five days later, we were all in court to finalize the adoption. And in the hallway outside the courtroom, Just before we went in, Nancy gave Kevin the five-year token that his birth father had given her the previous year, and she also gave him a note, and here's what the note said. November 9, 1990. Dear Kevin, this token is for you. It was on my keychain while I was pregnant with you. We made it through my fifth year of sobriety, healthy and sober, and so you are a healthy baby. God bless you and your new mommy and daddy on this special day. I love you with all my heart, and I always will. Your birth mother, Nancy. Now when I came to you, you said, here are the steps we took which are suggested as a program of recovery. Here's what we did to stay sober and to live happy, joyous, and free. Yes, we had to do these things. Yes, Paul, it sounds like it's time for you to do them too. Recovery from alcoholism, like recovery from any chronic condition, is a high-maintenance activity that requires the active, ongoing participation of those afflicted. That's why I think the sixth chapter of our book, Alcoholics Anonymous, which is a discussion of uh, seven of our 12 steps, is called Into Action. Significantly to me, it's not called into wishful thinking or into reading or into fantasizing or into flying around the country telling people my story because it's neat. It's called Into Action. And that's why almost 19 years later, I still have no better suggestion for anyone who wants to recover from alcoholism than to get a sponsor and to read the big book and work the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I tell you, these days, more often than not, I do wake up and say, it's a beautiful day out. I'm in good health. I like myself. I like what I'm doing. I have the love and respect of my family and friends and colleagues. Perhaps I'll go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting tonight. Again, thank you very much for having me here this year.